Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, the bass player for Canada's noise rock darlings, Mets, Chris Slorak. Chris, how are things? Things are good, uh, considering the, the current state of affairs. What have you been doing during this pandemic? Well, uh, I, you know, accidentally had a second child during the second pandemic, so I've been... Uh, trying to be a good father and a good partner to my wife and uh, spend a lot of time with my son. But I've also been, uh, you know, working on music with, with the Mets guys from a distance as best as we can and uh, preparing to release a new record in October. Well, congratulations on the new one and congratulations on the record. I Thank want, you very much. I, I want to just go right into this, though, because the new album, I was not expecting a single like A Boat to Drown In. What can we expect from this album? <laughs> I think uh, I would say that we hope that with every album we progress a little bit further and, and test our comfort zones. And I feel like this album is just another extension of us, uh, another another chance for us to sort of extend what we feel like we're able to do and, you know, try new things and try and, you know, get better at songwriting and experiment a little bit more. But uh this is one that I'm walking away from the process of making it and feeling really, really good walking into releasing it in the strangest year of all time. Do you think that it's a good thing to kind of just let fans sit with this new album for a while and get acquainted with it before they're going to see it live, even though they really don't have a choice right now? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think maybe it'll give people more of an attention span to spend on a, on an ind- like on a single record. Or maybe it'll fall flat. It's uh, it's really hard to predict how people are going to consume music these days, and I just try not to concern myself with it too much. There's not much you can do. Well, how was it working with Ben? Uh, sorry, Ben Greenberg and Seth Manchester on this new album. It was great. Ben uh, Ben's been a friend for a really long time, and bringing him into the the full, we brought Uniform on tour with us a while back, and just always had like a really great rapport with Ben. Uh, had him remix some stuff for us in the past, and uh, he was always just sort of like, hey, when are we making that record? When are we going to make that record, guys? So when we were looking for places to make this one, Ben's name just kind of kept on coming up. And uh, once you know, once we confirmed it and uh, got in the studio with him, it was just like such a good vibe, and everything sort of just moved along at like a, a nice pace. We, it's the fastest we've ever made a record and like maybe the most instantly satisfied I've ever felt about a final product. And I really do feel like Ben and Seth had everything to do with the reason I feel that way about this particular record. And Seth is, uh, I think that that guy's a sonic, like a bit of a sonic genius. He knows, he knows his room so well and he knows how to, how to pull the best sounds out of his space. So working with him was, just one of the most comfortable and uh, uh, it was a very trusting relationship we had with those guys to make this record. As, as three people who are incredible control freaks, it was really nice to have these people on our team working on this record with us. Well, this comes off working with Steve Albini. How was it working with someone as highly regarded as Steve? And do you feel like you got the album that you wanted with him? Uh, working with Steve is great. He's uh, a very... A unique character and just such a in in you know in the, I guess the scene that we sort of exist in a, a legend and um, 
to go in and work with them, I guess there was some intimidation at first, but almost instantly it was diffused. And Steve's very hands-off. So he put us in a room and let us make a record using the space. And uh, I think there were successes and failures to that whole process with him, but uh, ultimately I think it was a great experience, and I am really proud of that album. What was the moment that you could see a change in Mets from being this little Canadian underground band from Toronto to one that's being recognized the world over? Uh, there's, there's not really one moment, to be honest, that at every single... At every point in our career so far, there's been these little successes that have uh, that have kind of caught us all off guard and made us think like, "Wow, we're really, really pushing along here." We're, you know, we were a band that was three guys getting in a room, having a few drinks, and playing music, and not really thinking too too hard about the next steps or ever becoming like a big rock and roll band or anything like that. So we look at like every success as a big success. For, for this band and it just continues to be like wow holy cow people really like this too that's great well did you grow up as a fan of sub pop and was it surreal to get signed to them oh yeah i i uh i've told this story and i don't do a lot of interviews but i've told this story in a lot of interviews that i have done um when i was a kid i used to steal my dad's credit card and order from the mega mart when it was like <laughs> you, had to call, you, you had to call sub pop and and be like, yeah, I want to buy this and this. And you'd like give them your credit card number. You'd order everything over the phone. And then they would send it to your house. And I did that for like a year before he realized I was doing it. But <laughs> I, I found a lot of really cool bands that way. It's like where I got my first Mud Honey records. I had a, a heavy uh, romance that continues to this day with the band Eric's Trip, who are like, in the, like Eric's Trip and Elevator to Hell were like massive parts of my. Um, my musical upbringing, I guess, but it was sort of the when I realized that uh, I could record things myself and I could be a musician regardless of uh, my level of playing ability. And not that's not a slight against Eric's trip, but a simple song can sometimes go a lot further than like a really technically advanced uh, piece of music, you know? And sometimes you just want to hear that sweet, simple song and it just... It hit me, you know. What was that Mud Honey tour like? Oh, we've toured, we've done a bunch of shows with Mud Honey, um, and I would say I, I don't know if it's been confirmed completely, but the first two shows we did with them were in Montreal and Toronto, and the the legend has it, and Mark has never confirmed it to me, that he went he he went back to Sub Pop and was like, "We played with this band, Mets. Sub Pop should sign this band." That's the story I hear. I don't know if it's true. I don't know if it's false, but. Um, since then, we've become really good friends with them. They're, uh, they're really wonderful people. And, uh, yeah, it, at, at this point, touring with Mud Honey, if we could o- always tour with Mud Honey, I would do it in a, in a heartbeat. They're, they're amazing. Beautiful people. Great band. Matt's kind of waits on Western Canada a lot. I can remember the first show you played out here in Calgary was 09 with These Arms Are Snakes. It had a pretty small yeah. audience. And they were feverishly wanting more. And you weren't back until 2014 at the Republic, even though I know you were booked on Sled Island in 2013, but it flooded. Did you yeah. notice that it that the weight helps for places like Calgary? And what's your big takeaway from Canadian shows? Canada's a really hard country to tour. Everything is incredibly far apart. So, so we've been touring Canada to get to each city. We've been mostly doing fly-ins or if we're in Seattle, we'll, we'll skirt up to Vancouver. Um, 
my takeaway is I, I really love playing in Canada. I have lots of great friends that I've made over the years. It's just really hard to get to places is all. We would love to come back and play Calgary again. It's just we haven't had the opportunity in the last little while. So w- would you say that touring Canada really is just a mirror of hardcore logo? Kind of, yeah. Because, I mean, back when I was playing in Monin way back, I remember we were touring in like a, a tin can, traveling coast to coast in Canada, like from Halifax or even like from Newfoundland all the way out to Victoria and Nanaimo and all like just every small little place. But every single drive was this sort of treacherous thing because you're driving in the winter, the highways in, in the middle of Canada become like these two-lane, snowed-in nightmares where you just never know when the car's going to come and, you know, maybe clip you. But mm-hmm. happily got across. Like, I mean, between the three of us and Mets, I'm sure that we've all traveled across Canada like 20 times each in in this band and other bands. And it's it's sometimes terrifying like most drives are eight to ten hours at the it, like if you're lucky but yeah i mean touring canada is tough but it's I, I love playing shows in canada I've, i i love canada as a, as a whole i like being from here and i like playing here well i hear that you're a big cinephile what were some of those early films that really got you into movies i've been like a horror geek since i was like seven years old i'm a, like and i love like the tackiest of horror. I, I'm I'm the kind of person who gets a big kick out of a bad movie, but can also respect a good movie. Um, I would say, you know, still standing up as my the most effective movie for me was the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I thought it was um, properly terrifying and uh, real, and it uh, it always stuck with me. So that movie's always always sat pretty high on my list. Um, but the things that got me into movies were probably like, you know, the pop icons of horror, like Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees. I was a Fangoria subscriber and still am to this day. Nice. Do, do you find that you bring a lot of horror movie references to your work? No, not at all. No, because lyrically and uh, musically, it's just, it's not something that we all are on the same page about. So, I mean... I love soundtracks. I would love, like, I, I work on, I, I do a little bit of scoring here and there. And that all tends to lean more towards horror. But as far as, like, Mets goes, there's, there's like, 0% horror in Mets. Can we expect to see a lot of score work coming up from you? Maybe. <laughs> we, hopefully. I think, I think hopefully is probably the right word. It's, uh, it's a matter of getting yourself out there. And there's a lot of people doing this kind of thing, so... Uh, while I've worked on a number of short films, I haven't really got like a full feature or anything like that yet. Well, have you had a chance to catch up on a lot of films during this quarantine? I have, but I've also kind of just been, I got really into watching that Joe Bob Briggs show. Nice. <laughs> so, so I would, like it was until like the season ended, it was my Friday night ritual. Like it would be like, put the kids to bed and then go downstairs and watch Joe Bob until like one in the morning and, I think the character's hilarious, and the uh, the movies he shows, while I don't always love them, I kind of have all the patience in the world because there's interesting banter in between. Um, so I caught up in a lot of old stuff that I hadn't seen in a really long time or I hadn't ever seen and have been meaning to see. 
Uh, as far as new stuff, it's been a weird year for that. Were you big into when CBC used to play uh, Tales from the Crypt at midnight on Saturday nights and like the late night horror movies? Was CBC a big part yeah. in getting your horror for you? I mean, Tales from the Crypt was definitely a huge thing. I actually recently uh, started rewatching all those. That's something I also watched during quarantine, all the old Tales from the Crypt episodes. And it's pretty incredible to see the stars that were were on Tales from the Crypt. Mm-hmm. Just like, uh, it was like just Arnold like, Schwarzenegger to like Dennis Hopper. It's crazy. And Brad Pitt was in yeah. the episode I watched yesterday. So yeah, it, I, I think that that was like kind of a cool time for horror. I never, I never did get to watch Monster Vision with uh, with Joe Bob. Joe Bob is like a new thing to me. Michael Berdan from Uniform actually sort of gave him the thumbs up, and I trust that guy's judgment. So I. Uh, I got into it, and I, I love it. I love the character that he plays. Well, now I'm curious. Do you have any obscure horror recommendations for the audience? Ooh, uh, I wasn't prepared for this. So. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't prepared for that question. An obscure horror movie. Uh, leave me with that for a minute, and I'll find you something. Okay. Well, how much input do you get in all the Mets music videos? And has this been an element of the band you've always wanted to be perfect? Uh, I mean, I think there's a lot of a lot of things with our music videos have to do with us wanting to collaborate with someone who already has um, an idea. So what will happen is someone will pitch an idea and we'll we'll kind of riff on it a little bit and then find our perfect place with it. And then when you're when you're working with a director or a creator, you want their their style to be involved in the process. But yes, video. As not important as it is to to like the landscape of music these days is a really important thing for me because I think it's a really great way to it's it's mini films you know at, at this point it's it's a cool way to showcase your music and to work with really interesting artists. Well, Shane Amon did a bunch a bunch of music. Uh, Shane Amon from Thunder Bay did a bunch of music videos for our last record, and I find him to be like a really out there, strange, like visual artist, and I think that he brought something really cool to our music. I feel like your new music video is one of the most cinematic of all of your music videos. It was really great to see, and and it's cool that the song's seven minutes, so you got to really expand upon that music video this time. Yeah, I, the the guy that we worked with on that, Tony Tony Wolski, um, he was. I sent him the record. Uh, him and I have been talking for a long time about doing something. I met him at a Converge Neurosis show in Detroit. And uh, we were talking about doing a video at some point, And then this record kind of came together and I sent it to him. And I was like, is there a song that you want to do? And he sent me back that one. And we actually had already, we had someone on the line who was going to do that video. And he submitted his treatment for it. And we were just like, this is too good. We're going to go ahead with it. And he... Considering it was made in quarantine, I, I kind of can't believe what they put what they put together. It, we were really, really happy with the work that they did. Yeah, it's it's a fantastic little music video. Well, I want to go way back now to Monine days. How did you, right. how did you get into that band? Uh, I was uh, I played in the band with uh, a high school friend who had moved to Winnipeg, and. We, I guess he handed those guys a copy of our like demo tape from like back when we were 15 years old. 
and the Monin guys heard it. And then I met them in Toronto and became pals with them. And then they asked, asked me to play. And that's sort of what I did. I did it, I think, for two years I was in that band. And then, then I, yeah, we toured all over the place. Some pretty hard touring with that band. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not much of a story. It was just sort of like existing in a scene. There was uh, the, the music scene in Branson, Ontario, and Oakville, Ontario, was kind of booming with hardcore bands. So we would see each other. Like uh, We were just crossing paths, had like similar friends. And they just asked me to play in the band. I didn't really know how to play bass. I was a guitar player. And uh, I think that's kind of how a lot of people end up playing bass. But... <laughs> But yeah, I was a guitar player who ended up playing bass in the band. And uh, yeah, it was fun. And then it ended. I stopped doing it and moved on. Well, how did Mets come to be then? You you guys started in Ottawa, right? Yeah, Hayden and Alex started in Ottawa. So Hayden was in a bunch of bands. Alex was in a bunch of bands. And one of Hayden's bands went on tour in Europe and their guitar player couldn't go. So Alex went with them. Band essentially broke up on the road, um, finished out their tour, came back home, and Hayden Alex had had like a, a good musical relationship. Uh, decided to keep on going and changed the band, so they kind of started a really early version of Mets in Ottawa with this guy Chuck, who was also in Hayden's old band. Uh, when they decided to move to Toronto, which was probably like two or three months into Mets, they decided to. Uh, moved here and Chuck had gotten a job with the government and decided to stay in Ottawa. I ended up, I was friends with Hayden's girlfriend at the time, ended up at Hayden's house for barbecue, had a bunch of drinks, shooting the shit with him. And then he's like, yeah, you know, we just don't know what we're going to do. We don't have a bass player for this band. And I was like, well, you know, I play a bit. I'd come out. I didn't think it was going to be anything. It would just be like something to do, something fun. And we just kind of hit it off musically and started practicing more and more. Eight months in the practice space, we never like did a show, never had an intent, any intention to play shows. It was just like, we are just kind of being a band and having fun playing music and goofing around with our instruments. Friends of ours asked us to play a show and it went over really well. So we started playing shows after that. And then I think it, it was like four years before we even put out any music. It's just sort of like being a band and then playing these like wild basement shows for a little while. It's really fun. You know, you, you create like a, I think it, if you're lucky, you meet people who kind of inspire you musically. And that was sort of what the three of us were doing was sort of pushing each other along and inspiring each other to try more things. And, uh, you know, our early stuff was a lot of like really long drawn out, slow music. And then I think towards when we were making the, the first full length, we all, wanted to write like some more like concise rock songs, uh, but like sort of put to our filter. And that was sort of how we made the first record. It just wasn't intended to be a record at first. And then it just kind of came together. So yeah, then we put that out and it's just been sort of our, our main gig ever since. It's pretty crazy to think about it actually. Was there ever a discussion about the sound or did this kind of just evolve to be what the Met sound has become? No, there was no, there, there isn't really much of a discussion. It's sort of, you get in, like, you talk about tones and stuff, and you're like, yeah, I think this sounds good, or, oh, yeah, do this, or, you know, for the most part, it was, like, the reaction, a lot of us worked on the reactions to the way each other played, and I think that's sort of how bands work anyways, but 
to me it was there was nothing discussed in advance it was just go and play music and see what happens did you find it hard um coming up in the toronto scene or did you find them pretty welcoming right from the get-go uh well i was i was putting on shows so when mets first started playing i put on a few of the shows so it was pretty you know I, i wouldn't like book my band to open for some big show or anything like that but it would be i would put on the show for the band and i'd try and like curate a a a show with other cool bands from the city that i thought were good so we started playing these shows and we would get you know an audience out to to see us play we we actually had a fairly warm welcome because we were all we knew all the people who came to our shows we were all friends so yeah no i think for for mets it was very warm and I think Toronto's music community can be very warm at a lot of a, a lot of the time. Well, I um, I, I can we, remember seeing you guys at a house party in two thousand and nine, and the audience was just chewing you up already. Like it was, they they loved you guys. They wanted to embrace you guys, and they wanted to make Matt's that band from Toronto, that band from Canada that they wanted the world to see. So I was just wondering if it even had started a year earlier for you, or did you even notice that back then? We, what I noticed was that when we played a show, people would get wild. It was it was uh, it was one of those things that like we would start playing and it was like everybody in the room was so drunk and having so much fun and it was it seemed like this really friendly place to be. Like it wasn't. We did a lot of shows in like the basement of Parts and Labor and it was always just this massive party. Like no, uh, it didn't seem pretentious. It just seemed like people having fun. Like in. You know, there was no, like, snooty, like, we're, we're the cool guys of Toronto kind of thing. It was very, like, I, I, don't, I'm, I don't want to use the word humble, but it just felt normal, you know? It felt like a fun place to be. Uh, where was that house party? Oh, I'm, it was by the U of T, and I'm forgetting where in the hell it was. Was it a birthday party? It might have been. I can't Did even remember. Did Anagram play? Uh, I can't, did Anagram play that show? I can't okay. even remember. Did we do a? Did we by chance do any cover songs? Yes. That night? Yes. Do you remember? Yes. Yeah. Yes. You yeah. Did. That was my friend Jeff's house. Okay. Yeah, that was a great show. That was really fun. That was a fun show. <laughs> how how yeah. was that homecoming show at Lee's Palace after the Polaris? Well, after you guys got nominated for the Polaris Prize. Was it Lee's that we did, or was it the Horseshoe? No, I think it was Lee's. <laughs> was Lee's I mean we played Lee's Palace a lot of times I really love playing that room it's got the old that vibe of like an old rock club because it is I guess an old rock club um it's joyous you know there's people freaking out and the first thing we did when we we put out the record is we played at the horseshoe and you know I I can I can remember that night vividly because right in front of me a girl put her hands in broken glass cut her hands up and then just like i was like holy shit i tried to stop playing to see if she was okay but then she looked at it started laughing and rubbing the blood on her face (laughs) it was like totally wild and totally fun and every single time we played lee's palace it just seems like there's uh like sort of an energy throughout the room and it's it's great I think I, I can't imagine that show is much different. Well, okay. Now I'm curious because both are such legendary rooms. Do you prefer Lee's Palace or do you prefer the Horseshoe? I would say I prefer Lee's Palace because it's got better sight lines. Okay. But the Horseshoe stage sounds great. 
and the vibe in there is pretty cool too. So I, I really like both rooms, but I'd say if I had to choose between one or the other, I would say I like Lee's better. What would you say your favorite room is to play all around, like in, worldwide? The Brudenell Social Club in Leeds is way up there. Okay. And Vera in Groningen uh, is way up there as well. Both like historic venues um, and run by amazing people. Lopin in Copenhagen is amazing. I'm trying to think of some other ones that uh, that we played. Uh, we always play Numos in Seattle, which I like a lot. Yeah, I've 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 seen you guys play there. I've seen uh, Converge play at Numos. That's always a good time in there. Yeah, totally. The sidelines are good. You know, it's just a it's a big box and it sounds good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. The uh, the independent in San Francisco's kind of got that same vibe. Well, what was your time like playing with daughters? Did they have a vastly different work ethic than Mets or even Monin? Uh, I mean, it's a it's a vastly different band. It's it's going from three people to six people, and it's a really different style of playing. I learned a hell of a lot about my instrument playing in Daughters, and I made some really good friends. Uh, it's a tough band to tour with. Six people is a lot, plus the two crew. It's it's a lot of personality and a lot of you know, not a lot of space. So it was, uh, it was super educational. And I mean, to this day, I still talk to Nick and Lex and John all the time. So, uh, playing in daughters was terrifying and amazing. (laughs) The shows were always, uh, uh, a surprise. There's always something to, to sort of catch you off guard. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the six people aspect because I feel like Canada, Canadian musicians really want to strip things down. You guys just have the three piece. You got bands like Death from Above that that keep it at the two piece, but you all sound bigger, heavier, noisier, louder than most six piece bands. There's even 12 piece bands that don't sound as big as you guys. What do you think it is about Canada and the mindset that leads people to want to strip things down? You know, I would never have, I never would have thought that. I never would have ever thought that a Canadian thing was stripping the band down because Canada is famous for having bands like the Arcade Fire, a broken social scene, True. that have like 70 members. It's, uh, it's, not, it's not a stripped down thing, but I guess like in a, a more of like a punk rock way, I never thought about it, you know? Like, a three, like the, your classic three piece is just always, it's just easy. And we were making enough noise as three people that we didn't really need another person. So it's not something that was ever taken into consideration. It, it always just seems uh, to me like most of my favorite bands from Canada, like you guys or Ken Mode, Death From Above, yeah. everybody has like as minimal people, but as much sound as you possibly can. I, it, maybe it'll work to our detriment at some point. You know, There is something <laughs> to be said about like the joy of space and music as well, right? Yeah. I remember uh, walking into the writing of this record, Alex and I were talking, it's like, I want to play less on this album. I really want to like find my spaces and pull out when I'm not and play more tasteful instead of being right up front. And then when we started writing the record, there's, there's always space to be able to do that. But we're three guys and it's rock music. And sometimes it just requires like this bombastic, it needs to be big, you know, it needs to, 
everything needs to be gelling together perfectly. So sometimes the base is is the thing that's holding things together. You know, it's it's a glue, and it doesn't really have the opportunity to to take a lot of to to leave a lot of space. So um, I can't say that I've ever thought about about why bands sound so big. Maybe it's because with two or three people, people feel like they need to play more. <laughs> is that could that be it? Yeah, but I I could also look at it, and if I'm gonna go like university <laughs> talking points here, it could be because of the vastness of Canada, and you're trying to fill space. I feel it like could it, be. I feel like it could be some like very inherent thing about being Canadian, because I even feel it's that way with Canadian film. You have guys like David Cronenberg which are really trying to fill space in their films. As minimalistic as it can be at sometimes, they're they're full. Every single scene you could take, screenshot it, blow it up and it could be a painting on your wall. I find that I for all I find that for all Canadian artists, there's something about filling that space. Yeah, that's an interesting that's definitely an interesting way to look at it. I had never thought about it that way, but with that in mind, I, maybe I'll, maybe I will think about it that way from now on. <laughs> I don't know. That's uh, I mean, I definitely agree with you about Cronenberg. It's his music. His pardon me. His movies are so dense and uh, like visually stunning. And then you know, uh, like a, everything is a total mind fuck. So yeah, that's really. Uh, I, I can't. I would love to, on every level, compare my band to David Cronenberg. But I'm not about to start doing that. <laughs> oh, I, I, I feel like you are as influential right now as Cronenberg has been to filmmakers. Oh Every, my god! Most most bands coming up, they're referencing Mets. There's there's love for you guys everywhere. Wow, that's that's crazy to hear. That's really nice. Well, on that note, I like to thank you so much for taking some time to talk with me today. I know a lot of us are excited. I especially am to hear this new Mets album. And we're all excited to see you guys back on stage sometime soon. Oh, man, so are we. Cannot wait to start playing shows again. <laughs> have, have you thought about doing any of these quarantine shows? Like, do, like, a uh, live stream? Yes, we have. Um, can't talk about it right now. Okay. <laughs> there's, some stuff, there, there's, there's things in the works. There'll be some stuff coming. Well, I'm excited to hear that. Yeah. We're doing our best to, to try and, you know, move forward. We, we always, we all just feel more comfortable when we're actually able to play this stuff on stage. Records are great. And they're, for us, there's a lot of joy in the idea of being right in front of a crowd and playing a show. We can't wait to get back to that. Well, we can't wait for you to get back. Thank you again, Chris. Thanks a lot, Robert. Thank you for listening. Catch Chris Lorax's killer bass playing on the upcoming Mets album, Atlas Vending, out October 9th through Sub Pop Records. This concludes our broadcast day.